Luke 22, verse 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So this morning is uh, the final passage we have in the Gospel of Luke. We've been now working uh, 95 sermons is where we're at now. We're going to get to 100 before we get done with the Gospel of Luke. But we've been working and working and working through this text, this Gospel of, the, of, of Luke. And here we are in the final passage before the betrayal and arrest of and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's just around the corner. That's next. But... Over these past several weeks, we've been noting the, the laser-like focus of Jesus heading toward the cross. He has a purpose, he has a mission, and he is not going to be dissuaded. He's not going to be taken off track. He has a certain time, there's a certain timing to it, a certain purpose in it, and Jesus is not going to be dissuaded. He is going to the cross. And this is our last section we have before we see that, 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 that chain of events really take off. But what would you do with the last few moments or few hours of your life? If you knew, as Jesus knows, knowing all things, he knows what's going to happen. He's made prophecies saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of the officials. They're going to take my life and... Raised from the grave three days later. He knows this is all going on. He knows it's happening tonight. He tells Judas, you remember at the Last Supper, go and, and do what has been, what you have been appointed to do. He knows this is happening. What would you do with the last few moments of your life? What activity would you throw yourself into? And for many, the last minute activities wouldn't be spent trying to possibly avoid the final event. Like if you could get a, a heads up, hey, in a couple of hours, this chain of events is going to happen and you're going to be arrested and betrayed and, and crucified and killed. You'd think, okay, my last few hours are spending everything I can do to avoid that event, right? <laughs> that would seem like the, the logical thing most of us would do. If you knew that you're going to die in a car accident in a couple of hours, you would just say, you know what? I'm not going to get in the car. You would avoid the event. This isn't what Jesus does. Many people, if they had the last few hours, they're going to go try to make some, uh, have some grand experience or, or have uh, conversations or meet with love. They're going to do certain events for the last few hours of their life, find some sort of a meaningful experience. But really, asking that question is pointless for most of us because we don't have that insider knowledge about when our last moment will be. But Jesus is not surprised that this is what's coming for him. He knows. 
And this is how we see. And because he knows how he uses these last moments is very interesting. Because what is he going, this is what he's headed towards. What is he going to spend his time doing? One thing we see is that Jesus goes to this familiar place. Verse 39 says he came out. This is coming out of the, of the upper room, this gathering where they've celebrated the Passover. And he's instituted uh, communion, this new ordinance of the church. They're coming out of this room, and he goes, as was his custom, to this certain place. He goes to a place where he knows he will be found. You'll remember the secrecy of the upper room uh, introduction, or finding the upper room. He sends the disciples in, and he says, when you see a man carrying a jar of water, go find him and say, where's the room my master's prepared? And they'll go find this upper room. And it's very secretive, almost, where they're going to find this room to celebrate their Passover. Jesus doesn't want to enter. It's very dangerous for him to be in the city because they want to get rid of him. And so they, they go to this kind of undisclosed location for the Last Supper. But now Jesus goes to a place where everyone that knows him knows where he's going to be. This is his custom is to go to this Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and to pray. This is his custom. And so Jesus goes and makes the effort to go to a location that the disciples will know where he is going. It's his regular place to attend. He's not attempting to hide, but he goes where he will knows where he knows he'll be found by Judas. Jesus is not avoiding his death. He's going straight towards it. Don't miss that point. This is what's going to happen here to Jesus is not a cosmic accident. It's not God's plan going wrong that he is going to try to figure out how to make it work to our advantage. This has been his point all along. This is where he's going. He's marching straight towards it. As far as practical application, there's a couple of real uh, practical things you can pull from this. So just, I want to discuss them here briefly. I just want to quickly notice them. The first practical application that we can see is looking at the dependence that, and the impulse from Jesus to run to prayer. That when all of life is going to get heavy and get hard and the trial is on the horizon, we see Jesus running to prayer. There's no polite response. There's no sort of uh, proper movement. Oftentimes, the way that Jewish people would pray is standing and having their hands up. You see the contrast of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. You know, and the, the Pharisee is praying, thank you, God, I'm not like this man. And the other man is doing what? Laid out on the ground. Lord, have, won't even lift his eyes to heaven. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. What does Jesus do? He's, he's going to a desperate state of prayer. He goes into the garden and he kneels down and prays. Jesus is throwing himself down in prayer upon the Father. If the Son of God, if God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, considers prayer a vital component to his life, how much more ought we to consider prayer in the same way? I mean, there's just a real simple practical application. If the Son of God, through the trials of his life, his instinct is to lay himself out before God the Father, is to make appeals to heaven, if God the Son does that, how much more ought we to, in every event of our life, run to prayer, turn our eyes to our God, to our Savior, to our Father in heaven, and cry out for assistance. 
That's a very simple practical application here. The second practical application you can easily pull out of this is the submission of Jesus' will to the Father's will. We see this in the prayer, Father, uh, not if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, many non-Trinitarian religions will try to press this point and they'll say, you know, well, how can, how can God pray to God? That doesn't make any sense. How is Jesus in this garden who, if he's God, how is he praying to God? And they'll push on this passage and push and push. Uh, it's a, it's a modern-day heresy, Arianism, but it expresses in, in, in false religions still today this idea that Jesus isn't really God. And they'll press on this and say, well, he can't be really God because here we see Jesus praying to God. Therefore, he must not be God. Now, granted that there is some mystery of the Trinity here, but this, you cannot, this cannot be used to prove the disunity of the Trinity. The church teaches that God is of one being in three persons. There's a difference between being and personhood. One God who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Difference in persons, but sharing one being. And so here, as a person can relate to person. I'm a person, you're a person. You and I can talk, right? And so since the, the, the Trinitarian God is one of being but difference in persons, the persons communicate. And we've seen this throughout the, the text of Scripture of the communication between the members of the Trinity. And so here is just a living example of communication between the persons of the Trinity. One God in three persons. God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, has added to himself humanity and such and he has two natures. Totally God, totally man. You want a theological word? The hypostatic union. Okay, that's a good, I just love to say that. I, I say it way more. The hypostatic union of uh, that, that is not a mixture of God and man in Jesus. Totally God, totally man in one person. This is this is Jesus Christ. So as a result, there is in Jesus a, a human will and the divine will. And, and the reason why we know this has to be is that if Jesus didn't have a human will, then Hebrews wouldn't make sense when it says that he faced temptation in every way that is common to man. Jesus has a, a human will. There is, the, there is in him this impulse, this draw to, to sin, to disobedience that he resists. He resists his human will and submits to the divine will. God, Jesus in his perfect um, righteousness is going to say no to his human will of of, of self-protection and submit himself to the Father's will. And the challenge, the practical application there is that we would live our lives under the same humble submission. Father, my desire is not getting everything my way, but what do you want to have done? Very practical application. Not my will, but yours be done. It's absolutely right to make your request to God. God, I'd like this to happen. Would, this is my prayer. Do this thing. Make this thing happen. And it's absolutely right and biblical to say at the end of the day, 
God, I pray your will be done and give me the strength for whatever that may be, to submit everything to God's will. Now, those are a couple of practical applications. And if that's what you're hunting for, they're, they're there and they're good. And I got no problem with practical applications. But I'm always wanting to ask, is the point of the passage just practical application for us? Is the point of Luke putting this down just so that we can get a few pointers, we need to be in prayer and we need to submit everything to God's will? Is that Luke's big idea? And I don't think that it is. If we walk away just with practical applications, I don't think we'll understand what Luke is really trying to get across to us here. What is the heartbeat of this passage? What is really going on with Jesus in this passage? Not why does Luke include it for our own edification or challenge as we walk out, but why is it in there? The first thing I think that the writer, that Luke wants us to see, that God wants us to see in communicating this to us through Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the first thing that he wants us to see is this struggle of Jesus. It's, it's astonishing to, to think about. The struggle of Jesus in the garden. This is something we've never seen out of Jesus before. Think of all the things he's confronted. You know, when, you're, when you get out of the boat and, and the demoniac comes towards you, legion, Screaming, what have you to do with... I'm not, sorry, I shouldn't try to do the voice. <laughs> That's going to come across really weird. Screaming in this demoniac voice, what have you to do with us? That's going to freak most people out. That's a little weird. That's, yeah, that's, that's a scary movie in real flesh and blood time. That's going to really wig you out. Jesus commands the demon to leave. He's, he's not worried about the demoniac. He's in this... He's in this boat, and the storm comes up, threatening to capsize the boat. I mean, I'm not afraid of storms, but do you not still? I mean, sometimes when the clouds get real dark, you think, that's an impressive storm. I might go take shelter, you know? I mean, because it, you, you've got, that's, that's a, a normal reaction. But Jesus, in the midst of the storm, what does he do? He's sleeping, or he stands up and he says, be still, and the waves go quiet. He's unflappable in the face of all of these things. He's got these incredible sicknesses, leprosy and all these diseases, uh, crippled people, people who can't walk, who have no eyes, who cannot speak, who can't, can't see, who can't speak, who are deaf. All of these issues coming to him for healing, and he does it. He does it. All of these, and, be, and even to the extreme of, Jesus, someone has died, and now we need your help. Confronted with issues like that, Jesus is never really shaken. Brought to compassion, sure. But think about the tomb of Lazarus. He's been there days later. By now, there's an odor. Something to make you very nervous about. Trying, there had this expectation of him. And he's moved with compassion. But he isn't nervous about it. He's not upset. He knows what he's going to do. Yet here at the garden, Jesus is distraught. Jesus is disturbed. Some would suggest, well, it's because he's gonna, it's the coming death. He doesn't want to die. But I don't know if that follows. You can look at history, and many people have given their lives up very willingly for all sorts of causes they believed in. If it's just death that he's afraid of, I think that misses that misses the point. Look at the martyrs of the church throughout the ages who have boldly gone to their deaths 
much less scared than Jesus is. Well, how can that be <laughs> that the followers are more brave than, than the leader, than the one who, who, who secures their salvation? Why is Jesus so troubled? Well, I think he actually tells us in his prayer. He says, Father, verse, this is verse 42 of Luke, and get your Bibles back out. We're going to do a little workout here for a few minutes. Luke chapter 20, if you put it away, Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What does Jesus want removed from him? There's this cup. Father, remove this cup from me. There's a cup that he has to drink. Now, this, this is euphemistic language, really, of, of the portion that is appointed to him. We might say today, um, the hand that we've been dealt, the cup you have to drink. It's the same kind of language. This is, this is what you've been given. You've got to live life with the hand you've been dealt. You've got to drink the cup you've been given. And Jesus is saying, take this cup away from me. It is your portion. It's, it's what's been given to you. There's many places in the Bible that speak of it just in this way. You can look to very popular Psalm 23. And I think you probably could know it and recite it from heart. You know where the cup is, where a cup is mentioned there. Psalm 23, verse 8, you prepare, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. My, my life, what I, what I have, who I, my cup overflows. You can go back to Psalm chapter 11. We're going to fly through a few of these, but I'd like you to look at them if you can. Psalm chapter 11 Looking through verses, verses 4 through 6. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Speaking of a cup of wrath that is coming for the wicked, the one who loves violence. God has hatred towards the wicked, towards the one who does violence. And their portion, their cup, is a cup of wrath, fire, sulfur, and scorching wind. Go back to Isaiah chapter 51. If you got your pew Bible, that is found on page 728. Isaiah 51 Verse 17 says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Drink it to the dregs. You've heard that saying before. That's where that, it's a common phrase. It's a biblical phrase as well. It's just talking about, anyway, brew tea. I, I, if you have tea and you get to the very bottom and there's all the little grains of the tea leaves, if you, if you do it right, there's a nice little dregs there at the bottom. And that means you're drinking it all the way. You don't leave those at the bottom. You, you drink them up. That's drinking it to the dregs. That's, that's, that's taking all of this cup. And so here we see again this cup of wrath. It is the portion that is given to the people of Israel, to Jerusalem there. That was Isaiah 51. Go back a little further to Ezekiel. A couple more, a few more. Ezekiel chapter 23, verses 32 through 35. This is 844 in your pew Bible. Ezekiel 23, starting in verse 32. Thus says the Lord God, 
you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me, and cast me behind you your back. You yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring. So that's, that's what this cup is about here in this picture from Ezekiel. Is this transgression. This is your portion. This is what you deserve. Here is your cup. This is what you have coming. On back to, no, Jeremiah is where we're going to look at. Jeremiah, page 25. That's not on back. It's back to your left. Jeremiah 25, verse 15. I think I've made my point of the, what the cup is, what's going on with the cup here. But page 776 of your Bible, Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And lastly, Psalm 75. I promise this is last. Psalm 75 Verse 8, for in the hand of the Lord, this is page 576 of your pew Bible, Psalm 75, 8, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So there's a biblical theme pretty prevalent through our Old Testament narrative of this idea of a cup. That, that the wicked, and, and, and specifically on many of them, wasn't just a portion. Some of them were, like the Psalm 23, it's just your portion, your life. But a real strong theme of a cup of wrath that is going to be served to the wicked. Those who deserve God's justice for their wickedness are going to have a cup of wrath given to them, and they're going to drink it to the dregs. They're going to finish the cup. It is what... This cup is what is appointed to you and is often used in reference to the justice that is coming to a specific person or people. There is a cup of wrath that will be drained to the dregs. So then we've got to think, okay, Jesus is in the garden and he's praying, Father, if this cup can pass away from me, I pray that it be so, nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. Why is Jesus trying to avoid his cup. Why is Jesus trying to avoid his cup? What's the cup that Jesus should be served? If, if the cup of wrath is what's given to the wicked, Jesus isn't one of the wicked. Jesus deserves the cup of reward. Jesus deserves the cup of life. Jesus deserves the cup of everlasting life because of his righteousness. That's the cup Jesus should have. Well, that's not a cup that would terrify you. That's the cup that would be wanted. Give me the cup that has eternal life. Something is going on here in this God. May this cup pass from me that makes Jesus so concerned. What is this cup Jesus has to drink that would make him so concerned? It is because Jesus at the garden, what we see coming up at his crucifixion, his betrayal, his, what's going on here in this event is not Jesus taking his cup of reward. He's taking the cup of wrath that sinners deserve. That 
is what's terrifying Jesus in the garden. There's a cup coming his way. It isn't the cup that he deserves. He is taking upon himself the cup of wrath against sin on his own self. Not the cup he deserves, the cup sinners deserve. That's what he's taking. Richard Baxter, I put this quote up on the screens if you want to read it. Richard Baxter says it this way, the agony was not from the fear of death. It wasn't like he was just afraid of dying. The agony was not from fear of death, but from the deep sense of God's wrath against sin, which he as our sacrifice was to bear. This is the agony in the garden. He has a cup put in front of him. It isn't the one he deserves. It's the cup sinners deserve. And Jesus is going to drink it to the dregs as a sacrifice, taking it for the many. J.C. Ryle says it this way in his commentary. How can we account for the deep agony which our Lord underwent in the garden? What reason can we give for the intense suffering, both mental and physical, which he clearly endured? There is only one satisfactory answer. It was caused by the burden of a world's imputed or given sin, given to him, which then began to press on him in a peculiar manner. He had undertaken to be sin for us, to be made a curse for us, and to be allowed our iniquities to be laid on him. It was the enormous weight of these iniquities which made him suffer agony. It was the sense of a world's guilt pressing down on him, which made even the eternal Son of God sweat great drops of blood. The cause of Christ's agony was human sin. The depth of that agony may give us some idea of our debt to Christ. He knows what's coming. He knows the wrath that is coming towards sinners and is going to take it upon himself. And the wrath that, that believers are being delivered from is a wrath so incredible that it causes the Son of God in the garden to sweat like great drops of blood, to, to get to the, to, the, to the garden and say, God, if there's any way this cannot go down this way, I, I want it to go that way. Nevertheless, your will be done. That's the wrath that is headed towards sinner that makes the Son of God sweat like this. And so it gives us, as J.C. Ryle says, it gives us some idea, the, the depth of the agony that Jesus is going through gives us some idea of our incredible debt to Christ that he would drink that cup that we have coming to us. Jesus goes ahead and he submits to drinking it, even in the face of the horror that is coming his way. He perseveres. He perseveres because the justice of God demands it. God is a just God. He must punish sin or be an unjust judge. He's not going to, God had overlooked sin in his people for thousands of years. He's overlooked sin and in the future, he's overlooking all the sins of the church and those who come to faith in Christ after the event. He's overlooking all of the sin. He can't just wipe it away. It would make him an unjust God. God is a just God. Jesus must persevere so that God can remain just. That's what Romans 3 verses 25 and 26 is telling us, that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God, Jesus must go through because God's justice is on the line. Sin must be punished. So Jesus goes through, perseveres for the sake of the justice of the glory of God as a just God. He perseveres because of the joy set before him. 
We, he knows that in Psalm 16.10, God says, He'll not let His Holy One see corruption in the grave. He knows He's going to resurrect. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before Him, He endures the cross, scorning and despising its shame. He goes for the glory of God that he might be seen as the just God as he is. He goes for his own joy set before him and he perseveres for the sake of those that need the justification that he alone can provide. Do you see, there's, we have this picture here. This is, this is the Garden of Gethsemane. But do you see that picture, that event, that reality, not that specific picture, that event as a perseverance that was done for you? Christ in this agony is drinking the cup that was coming your way. And that if, if, you're, if your faith is not in him and in the drinking of this cup, it is a cup that is still coming your way. Do you know yourself as one desperately in need of a rescue? Then I want you to know this morning there is a rescuer. There is someone who has drank the cup of wrath to the dregs so that sinners can be forgiven. There is one who secures your deliverance from wrath through faith in his work on the cross. There is no greater truth than this. There's no greater joy than this. That you would be reconciled to God, not by your own merits, not by your own performance, not by your own good works, but by the work of another. By grace and mercy, taking the punishment that we all deserve upon himself so that we could be reconciled to him. There's no greater joy than that. Christ has purchased your forgiveness and your reconciliation so that you can live in the joy of freedom in him. This is what we celebrate every Sunday at communion. We celebrate his willingness to suffer for sin that was not his own. My prayer this morning is that in every morning that we get together, that it would be a true moment of rejoicing in who Christ is for us and all that he has done for us willingly. Let's pray. Father, help us now in these next few moments to despair of our self-salvation projects, to despair of our failures, of our rebellions, to confess them for what they are, sin against you. And God, give us eyes to see that we would have a full rejoicing in the Son of God, the Savior Jesus Christ, who willingly marched toward the cross, who drank the cup so that sinners could drink his cup of righteousness and know eternal life and satisfaction in you alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.